0: Hello, and thanks for joining us for another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a fresh and insightful interview featuring one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, or on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash thedirectorscut. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please take a moment to like, share, or comment. We love hearing your feedback. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Catherine Bigelow's newest film, Detroit. Based on the Algiers Motel incident of 1967, the film recounts what happens when misconduct by those charged with upholding the law resulted in the beating of several innocent civilians and the deaths of three unarmed men. In addition to Detroit, Ms. Bigelow's credits include the feature films K-19 The Widowmaker, The Weight of Water, Strange Days, Point Break, Blue Steel, Near Dark, and The Loveless, the movie for television The Miraculous Year, episodes of the television series Karen Sisko and Homicide Life on the Street, and an episode of the miniseries Wild Palms. She was nominated for a DGA Award for her direction of the feature Zero Dark Thirty and made history as the first woman to win both the Oscar and the DGA Award for outstanding directorial achievement in feature film for The Hurt Locker. After a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Ms. Bigelow discussed the making of Detroit with DGA past president Paris Barclay During their Q&A, Ms. Bigelow discusses her conversations with the survivors of the Algiers motel incident portrayed in the film, how she chose to portray the persistent violence throughout the story, and her decision to shoot chronologically without informing the actors of their characters' fates.
1: Welcome, everyone.
2: Thank you. Thank you, thank you.
1: Um, I should probably give you a minute more to recover. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see the film yesterday, so I've had a full 24 hours. Um, I um, was shattered by the movie. Um, This is a time that I grew up in, along with Catherine. I was in Chicago when all this happened. Um, And again, the fact that it's still happening now, and that this movie is happening now, is not what I would call a happy confluence, but is so important. Um, I think it's a little bit of a Rorschach test, uh, this movie, about what you feel about race and gender and lots of other stuff. So let's just jump right into it. Um, Why? (laughs) Why did you make this movie?
2: That's a really good way of putting it, like a Rorschach test. It is. It is. Um, I haven't heard that one. That's good. Um, I, I suppose because I think that the medium is capable of being informational and journalistic and topical and timely. And when the story was presented to me, it was right around the time of the decision not to indict the officer involved in the Michael Brown shooting. Mm. And so it kind of felt like a confluence of events, you know, and hearing this this travesty that took place fifty years ago and yet feeling like it was taking place today or yesterday or tomorrow and and um I just I was really moved by it, and I thought that you know maybe shining a light on it, maybe a little bit of light goes a long way. And if it affected me like that, maybe it could potentially affect others. Maybe there's some awareness that can be gleaned from it. And
1: but you question whether you should be the one to do it. You had that question.
2: I did. I did. I thought, am I the right person to do this? I'm a white director. This is a you know a very uh, very much a, from the victim's story, and but on the other hand, I had the opportunity to do it, and had been sitting there for fifty years, and it was kind of like, well, which you know, it was a it was a personal debate, and and then um, again, all the events keep happening, and I kept thinking, all right, this if this could add some noise to that conversation, mm. and maybe other stories could come forward, you know, then it becomes. Uh, you know, becomes an opportunity for change.
1: I love that. Which leads me to my next question. Go ahead. (laughs) Um, I I took screenwriting with this old Irish teacher, William Alford, in college, and he said if you're going to take two hours out of someone's life, you damn well better give them something. You have to offer them something. You can't just entertain them. You can't just distract them. So what is the gift that you want to give us with this film? What do you want us to take away?
2: Well... um, uh, that's exactly one thing I was thinking and, and uh, is entertainment alone is just not enough. And so as I began to move into these sort of more journalistic pieces like Hurt Locker, Zero Dark and this, I, I was very aware of them being informational. In other words, it was interesting to me that you could offer an audience an opportunity to learn something they didn't maybe already know. Maybe they do, but there's a chance that they don't. And that's where you're opening up another door. In addition to it being, you know, captivating or visceral or experiential, but that it could actually be informational. And that was that was really um, an important motive for me.
1: But what do I do with all these feelings now? I mean, what do I actually do? What's the next step? I've seen the film. I have been emotionally drained, and in some cases (laughs) destroyed. What do I do?
2: Yeah, good. Very good question. I do have to say we had a screening, this isn't exactly an answer to you, but I think it's more the Rorschach answer, but we had a screening on Capitol Hill that was hosted by Representative John Conyers, who's played by Laz Alonzo in the movie. And he has a bill before Congress that he's had there somewhat languishing for seven years to end racial profiling. So he invited this film to Capitol Hill, invited some congressmen and congresswomen and, and to encourage a dialogue so he could move this bill forward. And so I felt like that would be, you know, yes, there's a cost to it. There's an emotional cost to experiencing what is, you know, what is in the story. On the other hand, if there could be a gain of some momentum on that bill, it would, I don't know, maybe be worth it.
1: Be one thing moving. Let's go a little bit to the how. Um, this I assume you just didn't get the script like a Clint Eastwood movie where there's a script and you just shoot <laughs> every word and, 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 and nothing ever changes. I'm assuming that the development process was yeah. long and you were involved in each phase of it. So yeah. how does that happen? Mark just comes to you with a story. You, you work through an outline. He
2: came, he, his um, uh, person he works with in his office knew of this Algiers, Ho, Algiers Motel incident and... I mean, there's a lot of reporting on this rebellion in 1967, I'm sure you know. The Detroit Free Press won four Pulitzers for their reporting on it. So it's a highly reported um, event, and within that event, of course, is this Algiers Motel, and there's even a book about it uh, that that also won a Pulitzer Prize. So it's not a secret. It's not, a it's secret. not unknown. Yeah. It's not unknown. On the other hand... Within, within Detroit, there's, there's a certain degree of familiarity. Outside Detroit, almost none. I mean, I had no idea. I knew about the, the riots, but I didn't know about this. So um, so he, he told me the story. And again, it happened around the time of the Michael Brown the decision not to indict. And I thought the story was very emotional, very moving. And so once we decided to develop it, Then he went to Detroit. Both of us kind of set out to do a tremendous amount of research. I mean, I certainly needed it. But he went and did a lot of re-reporting and found some of the people that were had, had, had survived. And that's how you found Julie. Who's we found Julie. We found Larry Cleveland Reed. Julie is played by one of by Hannah Murray. She Hannah plays, Murray and yeah. And, and Melvin Dismukes, who's played by John Boyega and Larry Cleveland Reed, who's played by Algie Smith. And so spending time with them, then I went to Detroit and then spending time with them really helped, uh, Get kind of galvanize the specificity in the script like just the, you know all the beautiful details that that um, like spending time with the person who actually experienced it like Julie putting her hand over Karen's hand on the wall mm-hmm. and yeah just uh, just um, you know important details but also Melvin walking through from stem to stern like hearing the muzzle hearing the muzzle flash seeing the muzzle flash hearing the gun report going from the grocery store, to this building, coming in the back door while the National Guard detail is coming mm-hmm. in the front and walking through the kitchen and then through the common space. I mean, I tried to be as, as, as accurate as I possibly could, um, even though it's not the same building. That building no longer exists, by the way. It was raised almost immediately. But, um, and walking into the common space and coming upon this body as the police were clearing all the rooms and lining all the um, hotel guests up against the wall, so it was really helpful yeah, to have leading
1: that. through from beginning to end. And yeah. did the structure of it change much after you shot it from what you discovered in the shooting?
2: No, but that was something that Mark and I spoke about a lot at, from the beginning. Is is starting with the macro, trying to you know give you the sense of the context in which something like this could happen. The sort of the chaos. The you know you've got seven thousand National Guard. I mean, obviously, the governor Romney, as you see him in the movie, was terrified, or somebody was terrified of something. I mean, to bring in seven thousand National mm-hmm. Guard, you also had one hundred first Airborne, and you had um, and uh, state police, of course, and Detroit city police. But um, so, starting with the ca- the canvas that was so ginormous and then winnowing it down, beginning to identify these characters and not knowing I mean, it's it's I think a kind of a wonderful structure, but it might make people a little bit uneasy. You don't know who in fact you're emotionally going to invest in. And just like life, you know, you don't know in a way who's gonna live or die. And so that ensemble gets, you know, that narrows down, telescopes, telescopes telescopes until you're finally with Larry Reed.
1: Yeah, which is awesome and also I've discovered from doing a little bit of research that you also didn't necessarily tell the actors what was going to happen to them. So some of them didn't even know their fate when they actually arrived on the set because
2: Well that's a, I wish I could take credit for that. That's a technique that Ken Loach uses and and my cinematographer Barry Ackroyd for certain Mm -hmm. uh, situations and certain stories, he works very closely uh, for many years with Ken Loach and so um, we talked that over and, and, uh, and felt like this might be a good approach for this because the boys, the, the young African-American men with their hands against the wall, um, they, in reality, of course, didn't know the outcome of that night. And, and to give it... So every day we were... And I've also shot chronologically. So every day we were mm. playing in the moment. And it definitely lent a kind of organic tension that i'm not sure if you know the outcome would it be the same maybe mm-hmm. but there was maybe not. but maybe not and and at the risk of not i and and it i don't know there was a very kind of i also kept the set very fluid it was all lit um and there was there was a lot of movement cameras were constantly moving actors were constantly moving they could work through pages and pages without having to cut so there was an organic fluidity to it
1: but how did you keep the actors safe how did they feel safe enough because this i understand took three weeks to do that 45 minute sequence in the hotel lobby which seemed to be quite stressful for them i did step out of it for a second and think as a director how do i keep these young actors from just breaking down and yet at the same time continue to keep the performance at the level you did
2: I don't know. That was probably that was the single biggest challenge of the of the film, and um, I try to create a lot of trust, and that comes really in the early in the audition phase when I do a lot of improvisation. We'd actually don't use a script early on. We just I create situations that replicate the script, and so in doing that i think there's a fair amount of trust that's developed i get to know these people they get to know me they feel comfortable with me i'm not um i don't know it's it's there it's a shorthand and uh i it also i don't know you just you have an instinct that this is going to work out so they
1: auditioned and improvised a lot and you've chosen combinations of them but they haven't rehearsed they arrive on the set they do part of the scene, and each day they come back and do a little bit more. Correct. So they return to their blood and their place on the wall. Right. And you get them back to that performance level.
2: But what I see in the in the um, uh, what I see in the in the in the auditions is a tremendous amount of confidence. That's usually how I'll make my decisions. You know, there's somebody who has a a lot of confidence, a lot of imagination. They can take this idea of their hands against a wall, for instance. I had some actors standing with their hands against the wall, just like in the movie, and I happened to, you know, I mean, what, what informs you? I mean, obviously, we all have to work with a certain amount of instincts, so I happened to walk up to Algie on this one particular day of auditions, and I said, you know, sing something, if you want, if you feel like it. And he began to sing Amazing Grace, and then everybody against the wall began to sing. And it was just, it was just one of those moments where you realize, all right, this person is in the moment. He's actually using this experience, and I, it just—I had a feeling that it was going to work a, pretty well. Beautiful.
1: And a, a different director, I won't say a lesser director, might have taken out that wall to get the camera around to see the faces <laughs> no, I, of the people against the wall.
2: Have you spoken to my crew? <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I'm assuming in the practical location. No. That's, but also that stylistically is not where you want it to be.
2: It? No. I, yeah. I. I uh, I no I just I mean I know it's difficult and I know it, these are these are can be really cramped spaces but I think that you know that's that's the the beauty of it you know the reality of it the the challenge is the essence of it I suppose to a certain extent and, and uh and it's finding a crew that thrives on that kind of challenge
1: and before I forget I just have to ask who sets your background for all those who are oh, ADs and seconds if there was a background award, um, there's so much detail in everything that happens in each of those scenes, in each of those set pieces, not just in the club, but the people that are selected and how they're chosen, how, who accomplished. That. I, I want them to well, shout out. Well,
2: casting of background is something that, that I work very closely with the background casting. But then I had the most extraordinary, um, first and Simon Warnock, who's Australian and, Whoever knows him, he's just—he's extraordinary, and he'll—I mean, it's like he's painting. That's really kind of what it's like, and he'll work on it for days. So like he'll have it in his mind, and he'll do you know little kind of sketches, and like what if we did this, and then and 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 then he gets up, gets it up on its feet, and it's magnificent, and it has all this, all these you know beautifully intertwined, integrated moving parts that feel inevitable. You know, I mean, it just like it could have been no other way. And yet, it's completely created. So, wow. it, we we're very he, lucky.
1: Was the whole film done chrono- chronologically, by the way? So you did the first pieces, then the, the, the hotel, and not, then the end? Not
2: entirely, because we had to shoot. Like, in, all the pods were done chronologically. Like, the the rebellion was all done chronologically, but we shot it at the end of the, our production. And the we began with the... With the Um, police station, and that was all done chronologically. And then we moved into the Algiers, and that was all done chronologically. But some of it had to do with the fact that we had to shoot in Boston and not in Detroit. We did do a, a fair amount in Detroit, but not the whole movie because of the incentives program had been disbanded in Michigan a year before, and I tried, you know, I tried to get it back for us, but I couldn't do it. Um,
1: yeah, single-handedly, that's tough to do, yeah. so that moved you around. So I, I have a big question, which is sometimes, and I felt it too, and I'm sure some people may have felt it, you feel that this can leave you hopeless, that it's so excruciating to go through this level of pain. But you must have modulated it as you're looking through. I mean, I noticed that you didn't show after the first person was shot. You never see any bullets penetrating another human being. You just see the shots off camera. It's so brutal for so long that it can totally um, sort of shut you down. I mean, were you worried about that? Was there a much worse version of this that you originally developed that you peeled back on? Or is this as much as you felt you could push it and needed to push it to make the story live?
2: Well, I felt, I mean, that was something that the editor and I, um, William Goldenberg, who is also extraordinary, I was so lucky with this crew. But, um, I mean, we went through it, combed through it. We had so many variations and dialed up, dialed down, dialed, you know, like the—it's uh, it, there are so many little events that if you were to, and it's a bit of a house of cards. If you pull one out, then you're kind of in a, in a slightly precarious situation, but also I have to say that Julie, the real Julie, Julie Heisel, played by Hannah Murray, was with me on the set every day, and I'd look to her for basically kind of the authenticity of a particular moment, and probably every time I would ask her whether I we had gone too far, and she would say, no, it was far worse. Now, granted, she experienced it, so that's also um, a contributing factor, but, um, it was, I mean, it was, it was a travesty, you know, it's one of those, one of those just atrocities that, um, you know, kind of has gone unnoticed, and however, the state attorney did feel there was enough evidence to charge those three officers with murder, and it didn't, i know, yes, they were acquitted, but there definitely was a lot of evidence, um, about it.
1: And you could have probably stopped before the trial, and you could have done the trial as cards, but you wanted to go through the trial and to see their, not vindication, but to see their
2: Well, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, I debated that, um, but the trial was sort of what made it contemporary also. Hmm. And I felt that that's sort of the there, there of the piece. You know, you're looking at this thinking, oh, well, that's 50 years ago. It couldn't happen today. Oh, wait a minute. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so, so that that was, and and the trial was um, highly abbreviated. The real trial was there were three trials over a year and a half, and so this was kind of uh, you know extremely compressed version of that, of basically the outcome being what it what it was. So but there were
1: three trials for each of the different officers had their own trial.
2: No, it was there. There was one that was civil, one that was conspiracy, one that was you know they were. It was very complicated, and and also the final one, which is really why um, I think the writer focused it, uh, the trial on that one, took place in Mason, Michigan, which was an hour and a half out of Detroit, and basically a predominantly white—I mean, I think exclusively white—community. So, and the jury, of course, was all white, and. Um,
1: Interesting. It, yeah. So. And, and, and then the music, just wanted to talk a little bit about it because I only have a couple minutes, but the music also has a different through line. And because it starts with the song and with the, you know, a little bit of the Motown and the, the hopefulness of it, and then it disappears. And, except for occasionally you'll hear a needle drop in the background, and then it comes back as the gospel music in the end. Um, was that always just, you, you're thinking, this is my structure. I'm going to get back to that sound. Was that a hope that there would be some sort of periodic, not uplift, but some sort of period to the to the uh, movie with that gospel sound of the...
2: Well, that, I mean, I have to say is relegated by fact. The story. The yeah. story. I mean, Larry was poised to break out, him and his group, Dramatics, which, of course, the group did break out yeah. and had a tremendous amount of success that still continues to this day, but without him. He was really... He was really broken. Um, I mean, not just emotionally, but physically. I mean, you know, his. I mean, he was really was a broken, as was Melvin Tismukes. And but yet, singing gospel did begin to save him, and he does do that to this day. And so I, I kind of felt that you know, here's this artist whose artistry was silenced, and yet he was able to reclaim some of it. So it's a it's a kind of redemption, mm-hmm. you know, through, you could still sing, it's a different type of music, but... Um,
1: but you must have struggled with that choice because you know it's a cliche, it's one of those things that a stereotype like, I love fried chicken, which I do, I had some today, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's not something that I want to be seen doing on television. So you must have struggled with that choice because you know you're sort of feeding into an expectation, but it's also the truth.
2: But it's also the truth. <laughs> so, so that... So you yeah. go with the truth. yeah. Yeah, that was sort of, that was my parameter always. You know, if this happened or if the autopsy report dictated such or if the court transcripts gave me a cadence and a sense of the dialogue and the voice of the particular individual, then that that was sort of what dictated.
1: And I was very curious uh, as to why no one gave up the toy gun earlier. (laughs) just <laughs> in a plot story i just thought if they i'm against the found, wall they never found, they never the, gun. found the toy never gun found and no the one gun. would have said immediately there's
2: so many so many theories so many stories but they never found it wow. and um
1: but some so of the surviving people know that that's really what it was and that carl was that his name Carl Cooper. actually shot it the first guy who was killed
2: that's i mean again that's in but it, these are transcripts that do have some discrepancies. I mean, you could have ten people look at one particular event. You'd have ten different renditions of that event. So, wow. you know, but um, but based on the transcripts, and I even met with the lawyer that John Krasinski plays, mm-hmm. and um, you know, there were a lot of uh, a lot of discrepancies. <laughs> <laughs> but but not but uh, you know but for a piece that's very very highly documented, I mean, actually not so not so many. I mean.
1: And just to talk about Will's character, the character of Krauss, yeah. the main um, antagonist, there's nothing really redeeming about him. And obviously, he's been he's been fictionalized because that's not the real person's real name. Correct. But he is balls to the walls evil and a little crazy, perhaps. And I'm wondering why did you make that choice to make him so strikingly that dimensional? I mean, just that absolutely without.
2: Well. You know, was I that mean, just everything
1: we knew about the character was uh, that way?
2: Certainly, a lot that we knew about the character, but at the same time, um, again, you know, when you're looking at the court transcripts, you're looking at descriptions, you're looking at renditions of events. You're you're basing it, you know, to a certain extent, as much as you can on that. And then, mm. and then also, it's so interesting when um, I mean, Will Poulter is such a talented actor.
1: But and british on top of it and british on know. top
2: of it which he Just was extremely he kept, irritating he kept in that in that accent day and night you know we didn't i mean no, there, were mem- yeah, the there were yeah there of the crew that when finally at the rap party he spoke you know in a, with an <laughs> english accent they're like who are you but <laughs> but um but that kind of systemic racism what was interesting for will is you know it's almost like a a silent metastasis you know you don't i mean like he doesn't know that he's this person, you know? In other Mm -hmm. words, that's sort of what informed Will's performance Mm. is that is what how you handle a situation like this. You know, we look at it and are appalled and just devastated by it, but, you know, like, you know, I mean, it's really sadly symptomatic of the time. I had one last quick anecdote. I had lunch with um, Representative Conyers, before I started shooting the movie and um, you know, and he kind of wanted to know what I was what, what was I going to do in Detroit? What was I going to do about this? And I said, well, I'm going to shoot this, the movie about the Algiers motel. And he got silent and he looked at me and um, he said, that was an execution. I said, mm-hmm. I know. So it, mm-hmm. you know it's a it's it's still tough history.
1: And John Boyega I just wanted to talk about also because he was at a screen last night, the screen when I saw the movie, and he talked about his happiness with meeting the real... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mr. What's his name? Del-
2: Melvin Disney Melvin.
1: And how passive he found him to be, which made his job more challenging. And I thought that was very, very interesting because it is a very restrained performance. Right. I to think it's very effective in kind of an early Denzel way. <laughs> but it isn't flashy, And but it's still demanding, and we he sort of becomes the, the surrogate for us, Right. To see into the world, right? How was that shaped for him? Because he's an actor who's going to be at a different level—the level of Mackie and Will and those people.
2: Well, I think the key, the key that unlocked Melvin for John Boyega was the fact that he was introverted, mm-hmm. and he's big guy. He's like, you know, looks like a football player, but um, but very mm-hmm. introverted. And so, you know, thinking that here's this man who finds himself caught between two worlds. On the one hand, he's wearing a uniform. On the other hand, he's he's African-American. And so it's a very fragile situation he finds himself in. And I think the fact that he was an introvert, the fact that um, John used that as a key to find the character where it really does, that trap between two worlds really has to register almost exclusively on his face. And, you know, because, Mm. because it and we talked about it as we were shooting, just, you know, if you dial it one, you know, speaking of how to dial something up or down, you know, you dial it, you move it one way or the other, you're dead. You're dead. You're going to end up like Carl Cooper on the floor. And so, but yet he had this feeling and Melvin said this to me as well, that he felt that just by being there that he could help, you know, he could help these boys. And. So you know. Um, so then anyway, there was a kind of fragile balance that John then incorporated, and I think executed beautifully.
1: And then, just my last question: Have you found, in the few screens you've had, a difference in how a black audience responds to this and a white audience?
2: Um, I don't think I've. I, I think it's it's been a very emotional response, kind of across the board, but. Um, What's been really gratifying is some of these Q&As, some of the people come up to me and say, what, if yeah. I want to do, blackout or white, if I want to do something, what, you know, how can I get involved? How can I, you know, they, it kind of, they want to become active. And I, I mentioned some organizations that I think are really terrific, but that's been really, really gratifying.
1: Wow. Well. And so just in closing, I just want to uh, thank uh, Dr. Bigelow for once again (laughs) proving that making a film is about making a film and being a filmmaker is about telling the story you care about. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can check out past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website. At dga.org/podcast. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.